0: God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today, and thank you so much for coming again today. We realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there, so we bring that service to you wherever you are, as you know, anywhere in Israel, anywhere in the world, and we have people from all over the world tuning into this, and God bless you all from wherever you are. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and His promises for your lives. Now, would you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 41? Be'ivrit in Hebrew, HaSefer, the book, Bereshit. HaSefer Bereshit. And if you really want to know, in Hebrew, chapter 41 is perik Abaim Vechad. So anyway, we're going to be in Genesis 41 today. That's where we're going to be. And as you know, we'll also put those verses right up in here in the video for you just to make it easier for you to follow along. And today we're going to be finishing up on chapter 41, and then we're going to go right from there into chapter 42 and do the first 24 verses of chapter 42 as well. We're making our way toward the end of the book of Genesis. If you're Jewish, like I was, born into a Jewish family, and you're looking to study Torah, well, that's what we're doing right here. We're studying through Torah. We're not listening to what somebody told somebody told somebody else uh, from among commentators. We're going right to the source, to the written Word of God. The first half of the Talmud, Mishnah Torah, is the people there say that the written Word has preeminence over all oral tradition. So if the oral tradition of the rabbis or pastors, anybody else, if it doesn't agree with the written word, it's back to the drawing board. Because the written word is God's word. It's the truth. Hadavar Elohim, the thing of God, the holy thing that God has spoken. Now we're going to be talking about these verses and I'd like to talk to you today about the first step to healing. The first step to healing. You know, we all have guilt in our lives. Some of us more than others. And No, don't drag out your baggage. I won't drag out mine. It's pretty depressing, isn't it? But we all have guilt in our lives from bad things that we've done in the past or maybe even recently. And when we remember those things, we feel ashamed. The weight of that guilt is heavy upon us, right? Wherever we go, as we go through life, It would be wonderful if that shame could somehow be taken away and lifted off of our shoulders and that we would be made clean, wouldn't it? That'd be a good feeling for sure. Well, the main message of the whole Bible is about God's plan to do exactly that. It's about how we can be healed from that guilt and shame of sin. How we can be forgiven and cleansed and made new again how you can know that you're going to heaven at the end of this life on earth. I want to repeat that because I know a lot of the rabbis today say, no, you can't know that you're going to heaven. Remember Yochanan ben Zakkai, one of the most righteous Jewish sages who ever lived. And he was near his death at that time and his disciples came into him and they saw him fearful and, and worried and distressed. And they said, what's, what's wrong, Rabbi? You're the strong pillar of Israel, Yohanan ben Zakkai. And Yohanan ben Zakkai said these words, and they're very wise. He said, if I were being threatened by an earthly king that he was going to take my life, that would be one thing. But now I'm going to meet the king of the universe. And before me is put two roads. One leads to heaven and one leads to hell. And even now at this end of my life, I don't know which one I'm going on. That's what he said to his disciples. You can look it up. You look it up and find and confirm that that's the truth. And even today, the rabbis will, will tell you they don't know if they're going to heaven or to hell. The Bible, I'm here to tell you, the Bible teaches that you can know for sure. Mayahu is 100% certain that you are going to heaven if you do the things that the Bible says to do. And it's really very easy. It's not Hashemot Shaloshis Re Mitzvot, it's not the 613 things and commands of do's and don'ts in the Torah. You can't keep those. I mean, do you know anyone that's kept them every moment, every second of all of their life? Even the holiest rabbi? No. The answer is no. Well, here's the problem, you see. God is perfect. And His standard is perfection. If you miss something at some point along the way, and most of us miss things every day, every hour, probably every minute, if you count in your mind too, the sins that can be even in your thoughts and in your mind, God looks at those too. He made the mind. He knows what's inside of you. And even if you count those, there's sins that we have just all over us, but God is holy and heaven is the place of his throne and in his kingdom, there is no sin tolerated. And God has already said in the Torah and the Tanakh that He will judge sin. Be Hanavi, in the book of Ezekiel the prophet, He says, the soul that sins, it shall die. Now I know He was talking in the context of something else, but still that stands alone as being the truth. The soul that sins, it shall die. So you need to have your sins forgiven. But there's something that we have to do before our sins can be forgiven. First, you have to admit your sin. You have to admit that you failed. We all do. We have to admit that God is who we need to help us. And that we need His forgiveness. After all, if you think about it, you don't really go to the doctor until you admit that you have a problem and you need help, right? Well, you might go for a checkup. But if you've had something bothering you for a long time, you say, well, I better go to the doctor, see what this is and how it can be fixed. That's the way sin is. You have to go to God, and only He can heal your sin. Only He can take that sin away and forgive it. No other man can do that. You can't ask another man who also has sin to help you get rid of your sin. He's worried about his own sin. I don't care if he's a rabbi's rabbi rabbi. It doesn't matter. How long he's been studying Torah, and most of the time those guys don't study the Torah anyway. They study what the commentators say about the Torah in the Talmud. They try to tell you that you cannot understand God's Word. But as you see from us going through these scriptures, teaching these every week on an online church now, you see that you can understand these scriptures god made it so that you can understand he doesn't want it to be a secret from you he wants you to know him he wants you to know him we have to go to him and say god please help me take away this sin god we have to admit our sin before he can forgive us and that's what our message today is all about So now let's look at Genesis chapter 41, starting in verse 41. We got all the way to verse 41 last week. But we're going to start there, finish up the last part of 41. Then we're just going to quickly just sail right on through to chapter 42 and go through the first 24 verses. So in Genesis 41, verse 41, it says, And Pharaoh said to Yosef, See, I have set you over all of the land of Egypt. Verse 42 continues. Then Paro took his signet ring off, special ring that he wore that only Paro had with his signet on it. And he put it on Yosef's hand and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and he put a gold chain around his neck and he made him ride in the second chariot which he had. It was a very, very important chariot, second only to Paro's chariot. So anytime people saw this second chariot, they would know that it's the second in command in all of Egypt. In other words, the prime minister, the man just under Paro, the man who had all of the authority over the land of Egypt. And and Paro told Joseph, I want you to ride in this second chariot. And people are going to cry out before him. And this is what happened. They cried out before him as he rode through the streets of Egypt. Bow the knee. So he set him over all of the land of Egypt, over the land of Mitzrayim. And verse 44 says, Paro said to Joseph, he said, I am Paro, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or his foot in all of Egypt. Verse 45, he then says, And Paro called Joseph's name Safnat Pa'aneah. And he gave him a wife named Asinat. And the daughter of Potiphar is who she was, and Potiphar was a priest of On, one of the false gods there and everything. That's the way the people of Egypt worship. Of course, Joseph worshiped the true and living God, the God who made all things that are. So Joseph went out over all of the land of Egypt, it says now in verse 45. Then in verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Paro and went throughout all of the land of Egypt. Now let's talk about these verses before we go on. God has directed the heart of Paro to trust Joseph for his entire nation. Now think about that. Joseph had conditioned his heart to trust God. He knew he had a huge responsibility that Paro was giving him. And Joseph knows his own limitations. He knows the weaknesses of his own wisdom and strength. He knows it would never be enough to lead this great nation, one of the most advanced nations in the world at that time. It's really God who has blessed Joseph. God is the one who has drawn Pharaoh's heart to notice the Lord working in Joseph. Joseph is now only 30 years of age. He's now been in Egypt for 13 years as a slave or in prison the whole time. And yet we never see him complain or question God. He simply puts his life in God's hands, each day, every day, one day at a time. And God not only feeds and clothes Yosef, He's taken care of him in all kinds of ways. He watches over him, He protects him, and God also blesses Yosef so much that Yosef a slave who was locked away in prison only a few hours ago is now made the most powerful man in all of Egypt, the prime minister. Pharaoh is still called the king, but Yosef is the one with all the authority and all the power to do whatever he wants because somehow the king realizes that Yosef is very wise. And that there's a severe famine coming over the land. And we studied about that last week, and we'll touch on that again in a little bit. But the severe famine would come after seven years of good planting and plentiful crops, abundant harvest. But then after that, seven years of terrible, terrible conditions, no rain, all the crops die. In fact, it's so bad that no one even remembers the seven years that were good. And so Pharaoh recognizes that Joseph is exactly the kind of man that he needs. Not because Joseph was good looking, not because he was wise in man's wisdom, but because he knew God was in communication with Joseph. He knew God was directing the steps of this young man. So this young man of 30 years of age comes into leadership. In only two hours, from a lowly prisoner to the leadership of all of the land of Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth at that time, in a space of only a few hours. And he's been given power over everything that happens in the land. God has given him such favor, in fact, with Paro that Paro gives Joseph all the power and authority to run his entire kingdom, to do whatever needs to be done, here's the key, to save the people of Egypt during this severe famine that's coming. This is not just a political appointment, everything's going along well, and now it's time to appoint somebody else to that office. That's not this time. It's not just to uh, manage this nation of Egypt. That's not what's going on. No, this position that Joseph is in is vitally important to the very life and welfare of all of Egypt. If Joseph fails, millions of people, millions of people could lose their lives in this severe famine. Paro may be trusting in Joseph, but Joseph is trusting in God. And in the same way, there are people around you who are trusting you. They think they're trusting you to do something, but you have the responsibility to trust in God. And when they see God blessing you, they might mistakenly think that it's because you're smart or because you're strong that's not the case you be sure to give the glory you be sure to give the credit to almighty god who has blessed you with that wisdom and your life can be a shining example to others that god is faithful just like joseph's was and it can show others that they can trust god in everything in their lives now let's continue on reading from verse 47. It says now in chapter 41, verse 47 of Hasefah Be'erashit, the book of Genesis. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground did bring forth abundantly. It did exactly what the prophecy that God had given Paro said it would do. God had revealed to Paro in a dream something that Paro didn't understand, but Yosef interpreted it. And he prayed and God gave him the interpretation. And Yosef had said, like we mentioned earlier... It's going to be seven good years, followed by seven very, very bad years. And so, Yosef had told Pharaoh, so here's what I recommend. Gather up 20% of all the food and grain that everybody collects and grows, because we're going to have seven very, very good years. Abundant! Probably better than any of the years that you've ever had for planting crops before and we're going to take 20% of all of the people's grain every year for seven years, those seven good years, and we're going to store it away so that when the bad times come, we'll have a backup plan. We'll still have food, and people won't perish. Pharaoh thought that was a great idea. So it says now, verse 48, So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up food in every city, the food of the fields which surrounded those cities. Verse 49, Joseph gathered very much grain as a sand of the sea until he stopped counting because it couldn't be counted. It was immeasurable. Now, we look at what's happening here, and just like those prophecies and the dreams that God gave Pharaoh said they would happen, And the wisdom that God gave Joseph, the plan for storing up that 20% extra grain during those seven good years, that plan is working. It's working because the bad years are about to come. And now they're storing these things up in the good years in preparation for the bad years that are going to come. God has revealed to Pharaoh through Joseph what's going to happen. And so they get a head start at planning for this severe famine that's going to come. So after the seven very good years, the seven bad years, this plan is working. Man's wisdom. hmm. You say, I like planning my own life. I don't like giving my life to God to plan. I I think I can plan my own life. Man's wisdom would have never been able to plan to survive that famine. Man's wisdom would have never even seen the famine coming. At the end of the good years, on year number seven of the good years, man's wisdom would have thought, well, this last two, three years, it's all been good, so next year's just going to be more of the same. Man's wisdom. Toss it out the window. Get yourself some God's wisdom and trust God with your life. You don't know the future. He does. Are you afraid to trust God? Are you afraid to let go of everything and put everything in His hands? Get out under a night sky some night, away from the city lights, look up, look and see on the internet, whatever you want to do, look and see what each of those spots of light out there are that you see. Our earth is big, isn't it? Oh, it's big. It's 24,000 miles around. Oh, my goodness, it's so large. It takes forever to fly around this world or halfway to the other side. And, you know, and, and then yet, it's a big place. But our sun, our star, which is just like one of those stars you see up in the night sky, the tens of thousands of stars up there. Our sun, our star, is one million times bigger than the earth we live on. And there's things up there in the night sky. I know because I'm an astronomer. I work with astrophotography. I study this. I photograph the things in the heavens because Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. And I like seeing that stuff. I like seeing the glory of God up there. How powerful He is. How wise He is. His understanding beyond all imagination. You look at the things that are up there galaxies with hundreds of billions of these stars, that big, a million times times the size of the earth we live on, hundreds of billions of stars in each galaxy, and there's at least 2.2 trillion galaxies in the universe that we know of today with our limited technology. You think we're pretty smart, and oh yeah, we got some good technology today, but we still can't see the end of it all, you see. Man's wisdom would have never been able to see that famine coming. But when you trust in God, you're in good hands. Now we're going to go on and continue at verse 50 and finish up this chapter here real quickly. And it says in verse 50, And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asinat, the daughter of Potipherah, the priest of On, it was his wife there in Egypt, bore to him. Verse 51, Yosef called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And all my father's house. Then verse 52, and the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, I want you to look at those two names just really quickly. You say, well, Manasseh, I don't know what name you said, Pastor Stephen, but it's Manasseh. Actually, it's Manasseh. Manasseh. That's how. I remember I've told you before that the S type sound in Hebrew can either be a S sound or it can be a SH sound, like an S-H. And either way, it could be either way. Now, 90% of the time it's actually 90% of the time in the vocabulary and uh, in the words of Hebrew, 90% of the time when you see a, a, a Hebrew letter for the S, which strangely enough looks like a W, 90% of the time it's a sh instead of a sa. So while you may think that the biblical name is called Solomon, it's actually shlomo, the S-H sound. Okay, not slow mo he was a pretty fast guy. Not slow mo Shlomo, mo shlo-mo, S-H, L-O-M-O, you see. That's how it's pronounced. Well. Manasseh, as you would say in English, Beivrit in Hebrew is Manasheh. That S is a sh sound. It says, because God has made me forget all my toil in my father's house. Because remember, I've told you so many times that Hebrew names have meanings. And he named it Manasheh because it basically made, uh, it was talking about forgetting. God has made me forget all my work, my toil, and my father's house. He's 30 years of age. The last 13 years, he's been in Egypt. During those 13 years, he was a slave. He was in prison. Didn't have anyone looking out for him. And now, the very king of all of Egypt thinks the highest of Yosef and has put him in charge of everything in the nation incredible miracle. Just incredible miracle. And if you think that no one notices you, you're just sitting there doing all your work and you'll never really amount to anything. You just keep putting your life in God's hands. One of these days and when he starts to work, you better fasten your seatbelt because you can go from that affliction and that dungeon that you're in into being blessed beyond all imagination. In a moment's time in the blink of an eye when Almighty God says the word. says, okay, my servant there has been faithful with me all these years. It's time to move him on. God can do it. Be happy. Be content where you are. Don't set your eyes on riches. Don't set your eyes on promotion or anything like that. Keep your eyes on the Lord God Almighty. And he will bring it to pass and bless you and put you in places where he needs you, where you'll be most important for his work on earth. And that is the most important work on earth, God's work. Now, so he called Manasseh, Manasseh, because it meant to forget. And the name of the second child that he had there in Egypt was Ephraim. Ephraim, Well you say, no wait, I've seen that word in the Bible, and that name is Ephraim. Ephraim, and, okay, you can say it that way if you want, but we're going to say it Ephraim in three in Hebrew. For God caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. So he named his two sons that he got there in the land of Egypt. He named them one was menashe, meaning I, I've forgotten all the toil and trouble that I had before and and now God's given me uh, new, new friends and everything. And, and not only that, has God healed my memory. <clears throat> he's, called me, he's caused me to be fruitful where I am. In the land where I was a slave, in the land where I was sold as a slave, I'm now fruitful. I'm in charge of everything in the nation. <laughs> you know, he, he didn't view it this way, but in, in a way, everybody now worked for him. Before he worked for people, but now everybody worked for him. And he was being paid, if you will, to simply stay in touch with God and to do the things that God knew needed to be done to save all the people of Egypt. Now, of course, Joseph was a son of Yaakov, Jacob, his father. We know that. We studied his life in the book of Genesis. And remember that God changed Yaakov's name to Israel. You say, now why are you are saying Yaakov, Stephen? I, I don't know. I, I'm just joining you here today for the first time. Yaakov is just how they say Jacob. They don't have a J sound like we do in English. In Hebrew, that J sound is really a Y sound. So instead of Jacob, you would say Yaakov. And remember, even in English, an A can be pronounced A, or it can be pronounced Ah. In Hebrew, it's Ah. And, Hebrew, and Jacob is a Hebrew name. So God, though, switched it to Israel. Remember, Jacob meant heel-catcher, supplanter, deceiver. But God changed his name to Israel, which meant governed by God. So Yosef was a son of Israel, of Jacob, Remember? Jacob became Israel. Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Israel. He was one of the tribes of Israel, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And later in our studies through the Tanakh, we will see that Joseph's two new sons that he had while he was there in Egypt will also be given the status of sons of Israel through Jacob jacob later is going to adopt them later on in the book of genesis at the end of the book of genesis he's going to adopt them as his own sons and they are actually going to become two of the 12 tribes of israel and two of the existing brothers of joseph will not be a tribe of israel any longer but you're going to see the scripture changes things and now these two sons that were born in a foreign land to a foreign mother you get that? to a foreign mother who was not Jewish these two sons who were born to a foreign mother in a foreign land are actually going to be placed into the tribes of Israel and they will become two of the tribes of Israel and two of the other brothers of Joseph will not be tribes any longer. They'll be absorbed into other tribes. Let's continue now with the end of this chapter, verse 53. It says, Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt, those ended. Oh, the abundant years ended. The land, the, the years of plenty and all this great, um, a massive harvest, they ended. And the seven years of famine begin to come. It says in verse 54, it's just like Joseph had said, Then the famine was in all of the lands, not just Egypt, but all the lands around it. That means Canaan too, right? But in all of the land of Egypt, there was bread. In other words, there was food. So when all the land of Egypt was famished and the people cried out to Paro for bread, Paro said to the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, do that. Verse 56, the famine was all over the face of the earth, everywhere was like this. No rain, no crops. When there's no rain, there's no food. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and he sold it to the Egyptians, the food that he had been saving up 20% per year during that really incredible, abundant period of seven years of good, of good crops. And then in verse 57, so all the countries, not just Egypt, all the countries around there came to Yosef to buy food again, to buy grain in Egypt. Because the famine was severe in all their lands too, you see. Now we switch really quickly to the very next chapter and we're not even going to slow down here. Go to chapter 42 in the book of Genesis, verse 1. We're going to cruise right through this now. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob heard. No, he didn't see it on the evening news. They didn't have television there. Oh, oh, so he got a text or what? You know, was it on Instagram? Please. He heard it just by word of mouth. You know, that's the way he heard it just friends talking to friends talking to friends and somebody knew that heard that there was food down in Egypt and everybody there in Canaan was starving so they say, well I heard that someone else told me and he had a brother that had a cousin that had a friend and that friend had a dog that told him that there was food in Egypt and so anyway they they said well we don't have anything where we are. Well, let's go and check it out and see if and people were sent there. And some people brought back food. And yeah, there's food in Egypt. Well, Jacob now in verse 1 of chapter 42 saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, he's an old guy now. Probably older than I am. I don't know. I can't remember. Anyway, he said to his sons, why are you sitting there looking at one another? He said, indeed, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Get up, go down to that place and buy food for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. It says in verse 3, verse 4, But Jacob did not send Joseph's younger brother Benjamin with his brothers because he said, lest some calamity fall him. Now, Jacob doesn't want to lose Benjamin. And by the way, in Hebrew we say Benjamin. I'll tell you why in a little bit. Jacob does not want to lose Benjamin, Benjamin. He and Joseph were the only sons that Jacob had through his beloved wife, Rachel. Rachel. She's called Rachel in Hebrew. They were the only sons that Rachel had. His other wife Leah and these handmaids had other sons, but Rachel only had two sons. And remember, Jacob thinks Joseph is dead. He thinks Joseph was destroyed by some wild animal, and he hasn't seen Joseph now in 13 years. Joseph was one of the sons of his beloved wife, Rachel, and now he's only got one son left to remember her by. Now she's gone. She died giving birth to Benjamin, to Benjamin. Now Yaakov, Jacob, thinks that Joseph is dead, and he's being very protective of his younger brother, Benjamin. Rachel was Jacob's right hand. He loved her greatly. She was everything in his life. And in Hebrew, Benjamin, how we say it in Hebrew? Benjamin means son of my right. Son of my right hand, son of my right. Ben is the Hebrew word for son. I know it's short for Benjamin in English, but Ben means son. Yamin is how we say right, so the opposite of left. Here's the right. Ben Yamin means son of my right hand. So that name was given to him so that he would remember Rachel, Rachel, his wife. Jacob loved Rachel so much. But Jacob also realizes that unless they get food, grain to make bread and food, That's how they did it, you know. His whole family would perish. And that's how severe this famine is at that point. He can't just go down to the store, go to Walmart or something and buy some more food. No, in those days, people grew their own food on the land they lived on. And it didn't come up just like a loaf of bread or an apple pie. It came up as grain and they had to cook it and thresh it, and prepare it, and then make it into bread, and make it into cakes, and then all these other things, you see. They would grow their own food. They lived off the land. Now, everything depended on the rain. Without the rain, there's no crops. No grain could grow. So the people had nothing to eat. Without the rain, there was nothing to make food from. Even the animals would die, if you think about it, during the famine, because without the rain, there was no grass for the animals to eat. So Yaakov sent his sons to Egypt to buy grain so that they would have food, because he heard that there was grain down in Egypt. The famine was not just in Egypt, like I said, it was in all of the Middle East around there. So all the people in Canaan were also in danger of perishing from the famine because they didn't have grain, so they couldn't make bread and have food. Now let's continue on in verse 5 of chapter 42 as we go quickly into this now. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who, were, uh, who journeyed back and forth. And so, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. He just, they, these ten brothers of Joseph they joined with other people who were traveling back and forth to Egypt because they all heard that there was food down there and otherwise they would starve. So they were in these little caravans and going back and forth down to Egypt to get whatever food they could. So their families did not starve to death and perish in in the famine. So the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed there. Because the famine was all in the land of Canaan too. And then verse 6 it says now Joseph was the governor of the land. We already know that. He was made prime minister I guess you would call it. He was over all of the things. Pharaoh had told him no man in Egypt can lift a foot or a hand without your permission. That's how powerful he was. I don't. Yeah, I wouldn't want people coming to me all the time and say, "Can I lift my right hand?" <laughs> I, I would just say, "I'm I mean, here's an edict. Here's a decree. Everybody can lift their foot and their hand whenever they feel like it." And then I wouldn't be bothered by all those meetings and everything like that. But it says now, Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. He was the guy standing there who would, I guess we would say, who would vet these people who were coming to buy food. Well, you want some of our food. Well, where are you from? How many people in your family? We have to be careful. We can't give away too much, but we want you to have enough. So, and and you're not to take this and sell it. This is for you and your family. Now, the reason why I emphasize sell it is because a lot of times, in the work that we do with the poor in Israel. When we first started doing that, we're handing out blankets, handing out coats, and things like that for the winter because the winter was coming. And and one guy said, well, you know, I, I've got a wife too. She needs a blanket. She needs a coat. So we gave him a blanket and a coat for his wife. Shortly thereafter, he came back and said, well, I've got children also. They need blankets and coats. And, we go, how many children do you have? And he goes, I have five. Well, in the early days, we didn't know how it was working there, you see. And so we gave him five more. So one for his wife, one for him, five for the children. We later found out that some of these people were going down to the Kamel, the open air market, and selling these things to other people. They were using them to make money. They lied to us. So Joseph now was over all of this food, and he would interview the people and sell it to the people that came to the land to buy food, to make sure no one took advantage of it and lied and tried to deceive them, trying to get more than everybody else so that they could sell it to hungry people, you see. But Joseph's brothers came down, they came down to him, and they bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, it says in verse seven, but he acted as a stranger to them and he spoke roughly to him, to them. And it turns out he was speaking through a translator as well. They didn't know he could speak Hebrew, you see. And then he said to them, where do you come from? He was acting like a stranger to them because he recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. And they said, we come from the land of Canaan to buy food. Verse 8, Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. It says, verse 9, then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. And he said, you are spies. You've come down to see the nakedness of the land. Hold on right there. He remembered the dreams that he had had when he was 17 years of age and under and he remembered that they would be bowing down to him in his dream. And they said, Really, I'm not gonna we're not gonna bow down to you. That's absurd that you dream dreams like that. And they hated him. That's why they sold him down into slavery into Egypt. But now they come, they don't know who he is. All they know is he's the guy in charge of the food. And they come and they bow down to him. And he sees his brothers and recognizes them and they're bowing down to him. No doubt, just for a moment there, he goes like that's exactly what the Lord showed me would happen. They're bowing down before me, even though I was a, a, one of the youngest brothers, one of the two youngest brothers at that time. And from a different mother at that time, a Rachel. And now they're bowing down before me, just like God said they would. And so he played the role of a stranger. He was a pretty good actor. He remembered the dreams about them. Then he said to them in verse 9, oh, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. You've come to see how bad things are, he was saying. Verse 10, they said to him, No, no, my Lord, but your servants just came to buy food. Verse 11, we're all the sons of one man, and we are honest men. Your servants are not spies. In verse 12, but he said to them, No, but you've come to see the nakedness of the land. Verse 13, and they said, Your servants are 12 brothers. The sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is still with our father today. And one doesn't exist anymore. One is no more. Verse 14, but Joseph said to him, It's like I said, you're spies. In this manner, I'll test you. He says in verse 15, By the life of Pauro, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here with you. So send one of you and let him bring back your brother and you shall be kept in the prison while he's gone that your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth or not. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Wow. Joseph is really being rough on these guys. He knows it's his brothers. What's going on here? Well, let's read on and we'll see. Continuing now with verse 18. Then Yosef said to them the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. I've been thinking of this for a while. I, maybe I'm too harsh on you. Do this then and live, for, because I fear God. I want your family to be okay. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to the prison house here. But you, the rest of you, go and carry grain for the famine of your houses so that your family can have food to eat in the meantime. Verse 20. And bring your youngest brother to me so that I can verify your words and you shall not die. And so they did so. Now, we see after verse 20 finishes, we see that Joseph has recognized his brothers. He knows who they are, but they don't recognize him. He's speaking in Egyptian through an interpreter, probably. But it seems like he's speaking in Arabic through uh, through an interpreter. He knows who they are, but they don't recognize him. It seems like Joseph is just being mean to them. Why is he treating them like that? I thought he was a man of God. Why is he treating his brothers like that? Is he trying to get even with them because they sold him into slavery and and let him be taken down to Egypt? No, Joseph really loves them. We'll find that out later in the book of Genesis. Joseph really loves them. In fact, he loves them so much, he wants them to be healed from the guilt of their sin. And he wants them to be forgiven. Joseph knows that for them to truly be forgiven and free from the guilt that they have for selling their brothers away they first need to admit that they've sinned. They have to admit that what they did was wrong, and only then can they take that next step and be restored with their brother and have clean hearts, have forgiven hearts. In the same way, God wants God doesn't want us to perish So sometimes He makes things that are difficult for us to go through so that we will get to the point to where we ask Him to help us and to forgive us of our wrongs. We just instinctively think that, well, maybe I've done something wrong. And, oh, many times you don't have to say, maybe, you go, oh, I know what this is about. It's because I did that thing yesterday or last week or, oh, it's because I treated this person that way or... I said these words, or I did that, I stole something. And you you just instinctively know that God's trying to get my attention here. That's why I'm going through these trials. God doesn't want you to perish. So sometimes He lets you go through trials so that you will get to that point to where you'll ask Him to forgive you and to help you. He allows us to go through trials until we come to Him. Then we can ask Him for forgiveness, you see. Yes, the trials are hard, but if those trials lead us to everlasting life in heaven, then they are absolutely worth it. Better to go through a few trials for a few days or a few months or a couple of years, whatever it is, better to go through trials in this life than not to have everlasting life. So God makes it to where we will be motivated to repent of our sins and turn to Him and receive everlasting life when we do, you see. Nothing is as important as your eternal salvation. Let me say that again. Nothing is as important as your eternal salvation. Getting your paycheck every week, that's not as important as your eternal salvation. Being able to get that new car that you want, those new clothes that you want. Oh, it seems so important to you. You just must have those eternal salvation everlasting life. Doesn't that sound quite a bit more important? I think so. These few years on earth are like a tiny drop of water in a huge swimming pool full of water when compared to the everlasting life that God has for you. Let's continue now at verse 21 as we finish up this chapter. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, talking about Joseph for we saw the anguish of his soul he pleaded with us and we would not listen we would not hear therefore this distress this trial has come upon us and Reuben said in verse 22 he's the oldest remember the firstborn of Jacob. Reuben answered and said did I not tell you don't sin against the boy and you wouldn't listen therefore now his blood is being required of us It's come back to honest. Your sin always finds you out. Your sin always finds you out. Verse 23, they then continue, but they did not know that Joseph was understanding them. He was standing close by. They didn't know that he understood them. They thought he was an Arabic speaker and they're talking to each other in Hebrew they didn't know that he understood them because he spoke to them through an interpreter like we said verse 23 see in through the interpreter and then Joseph turned himself away from them and cried and wept he didn't want them to see that he was weeping they might have said why is this strange guy crying you know he's the guy in charge of the food but could it be that he heard us he didn't want them to know that he understood what they were saying. So he turned away from them and wept, dried his eyes real quick. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Shimon, Simon, we say Shimon, be Evrit in Hebrew, Shimon from them, and he bound them, tied him up right before their eyes. He was the one that was going to stay there in the house present while they went and got their younger brother. Now, This is a very important principle in the scripture. This is the essence of our message today. In the Tanakh, it's based on this. You have to admit your sin before you can be forgiven. When you come to the Lord, you don't have to list everything and all the detail. Just say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Help me, God. Save me. You have to admit your sin before the sin can be forgiven. Now, that's important because sin cannot come into heaven. Heaven is the place of God's throne. He's a holy God. He's righteous and pure. There's no darkness in Him. Sin cannot exist in His presence. And He must judge sin. And when sin is found, God destroys the sin because sin cannot exist in His presence. And when He destroys the sin inside a person, well, guess what? That destroys the person along with the sin. But God didn't create you to be destroyed. He created you to be His child. He wants you to have everlasting life and live with Him forever in His kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. But we've all sinned. And we still do so continually every day, it seems, right? Sin is like a disease that we all have, and we must first be healed of that disease and forgiven our sins before we can be allowed in heaven. Because with our sin still in us. We can't come into the place where we would have everlasting life. And be before the presence of God all the time. And in His presence is that life. He is the life that has come down to the world to give life to all who believe on Him. The Mashiach. Yeshua HaMashiach. Now God knew that we couldn't survive and couldn't have that eternal life so he became a man and he gave his own physical life to atone for the sins of all of mankind to all who would even believe he did this and as a man this Messiah Yeshua Jesus in English became the Kippur the Kappara the atonement for our sins and just as God told Israel for the first Passover God says, when I see the blood of the blemish-free sacrifice on the doorpost of the house, I will pass over that house in judgment. And now in the same way, when He sees the blood of His sinless Son, Yeshua HaMashiach, on the doorpost of our hearts, He will not judge you for your sins, because your sins have been forgiven through the atoning blood of God's blemish-free sacrifice his son, the son of God. So you must do as God says and believe on the one whom he sent to be saved from judgment. Then and only then will you be permitted to enter, to enter into heaven. The gift of salvation and forgiveness in Yeshua is free. It's a chinam. It's free, but you must take that gift or it does you no good. All you have to do is confess Yeshua as Mashiach and Lord, and you will be saved. So you see, obviously, you need to confess that you're a sinner, that you have sinned, and that you see that you need God's forgiveness before you can be healed of that sin. Admitting that you have sin is the first step in being healed and being restored to God. And that's exactly what we see here in these verses today. Joseph's brothers are finally admitting that they did wrong when they sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. And by admitting their own sins, they've taken the first step to being healed. Very important principle in the scriptures. The Tanakh, the Chadasha, the Old Testament, the New Testament, both of them say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And since we've all sinned, none can enter the kingdom of heaven until those sins are forgiven. And we're forgiven when we believe on the one that God sent, HaMashiach, HaMashiach Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. Why don't you give your life to God today, right now? If you call out to Him, He'll hear that cry. And He'll answer you, and He'll rescue you from that darkness that you're in. He'll shine His light onto your heart, and you'll be given a new life. He'll change you into a new person. Throw all those past failures, all those sins away. You'll be made completely new, and He'll keep you clean, too. Given a new start, He'll give you everlasting life in heaven, and that's guaranteed by God Himself, Davar Elohim, in the Word of God. We want to give you an opportunity to believe in Yeshua as the Mashiach and Lord and to receive God's peace in your life. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent his one and only son into the world to save us from judgment. Pray something like this. You could repeat after me if you'd like. Just say, God, I do want to know you and have this real peace in life. Lift this burden from me, Lord. Take those sins away. Let me have joy. Let me have peace in my life. I believe on your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, I'll tell you something. God heard you. And even now, He's already started working in your life. A little seed's been planted deep down in your heart. You don't see it at first. Takes time for it to grow and break through the ground, but after a while you'll begin to see the wonderful changes that God's making in your life. Get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about God every day in His Word. Don't just listen to what other people say about Him. You learn in the direct Word of God. And talk to God every day in prayer. He's going to do beautiful things in your life.